When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window. This is the podcast that not only takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football, but brings you insight and analysis on the issues that matter every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are pundits extraordinaire Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. On today's Transfer Podcast, we reveal the name of the man that could take on the vacant director of football role at Chelsea and tell you why he may want to think long and hard before committing to the Stamford Bridge Club. And it's an often repeated cliche that the Premier League is the best in the world. But is it the season this year that this has become true? We assess the wafer-thin margins in the fight for both the title and Champions League places. We always like to start with a bit of breaking news and Duncan has a story coming out of Chelsea. What's happening in the west of London? Well, this Chelsea looking at um, the recruitment problems, which are obviously very broad scale, given that uh, they're about to have a transfer window ban um, from FIFA, which they've, they've tried to have uh, suspended unsuccessfully so far. I suspect they'll go to um, the Court of Arbitration for Sport to challenge FIFA's decision not to give them um, a suspension while they appeal that ban um, but uh, as things stand they're not going to be able to do anything in the next two windows but this has broader repercussions than just what they can shop for uh, in, the, in the coming summer um, to improve a squad that we can all see has significant problems and who their current manager if he survives clearly isn't happy with um, they are again looking for a director of football um, uh, the post that they didn't replace after Michael Emanalo resigned uh, to go to Monaco in 2017. At the end of 2017, they've been in contact again, as they were at that time, with um, Luis Campos, who is the in charge of recruitment at Lille, um, second in Ligue 1, um, was previously in charge of Monaco and was responsible for building the team that took the French title off PSG and got them to the semi-final of Champions League and also subsequently um, raised more transfer fee revenue in a single window than, than any club ever, um, securing players like Kylian Mbappe um, be the, the key example. Um, so they, Chelsea are unsurprisingly interested in campus. They've been in conversations with them again. The problem they have is... Um, he doesn't want to go to Chelsea unless he knows uh, he has a good chance of succeeding. And I think this is telling about where Chelsea are as a football club because this was five years ago, Chelsea approached um, technical director at uh, a European club uh, and asked them to come and join them. Not, you know, not a top tier, an absolute elite European club. I don't think the conversation would go on for very long. They'd be able to hire the guy they wanted. But Campus is highly regarded. Um, there is interest from other clubs. Um, he has been looking to move to the Premier League 
are considering a move to the Premier League for some time now um, has been approached. He was the, the man Jose Mourinho recommended to Manchester United to come in to be their first director of football, um, something Edward did not want to do, i.e. appoint um, Mourinho's recommendation for the role. Um, so he is an extremely strong candidate on his track record, but if he moves to the Premier League, he wants to come to a club where he has a chance of success. And his concern isn't just the transfer window ban, which obviously if you're specialism as recruitment, you're going to be worried about to uh, transfer window ban. It's also where the club is generally, um, what kind of finances are available, what structure the club is, what the plans of the owner are, whether the owner is going to stay on long term. Um, I'm, I understand he's looking for reassurance on all of those areas um, before deciding whether to take it or not. And I, I think, yeah, just to underline, this is very worrying for Chelsea that they're now in a position where um, potential hires, um, be they manager, uh, technical director or players, are asking serious questions about where, what the status of the club is, what their ambitions are, and how likely they are going to be able to succeed in their jobs um, at the club uh, going forward. I think this we've already seen an example of this, Duncan, um, in the January window when Chelsea brought in Gonzalo Higuain, who was already out on loan from Juventus because he wasn't playing well at Juventus. Uh, and, you know, his performances have been average at best. Uh, he's also, well, I think he's 30 or 31 now. It, it just shows you that, you know, how far Chelsea have fallen, if you like, from the state of the elite super rich, uh, which they still are, uh, well, theoretically. But um, you think, what, five, six years ago, they broke their own transfer record in January to buy Fernando Torres, who, if, of course, they'd done their due diligence and found out he did dodgy knee, then they may not pay that amount of money for him. But effectively, they bought one of the best strikers in the world in the January window. And now they're getting on loan a guy who can't even get a game at Juventus. So, and there's no secret in, in the football world. And by that, I mean, you know, the people who own, manage and uh, administer football clubs, that there's a lot of doubt about Roman Branovich's commitment to the club. Um, he's rarely been seen at games since uh, his um, visa was revoked by the British government uh, last year. Uh, and he, he obviously took out Israeli citizenship. Uh, he's obviously free to travel to and from Britain as he pleases, but um, obviously the new stadium plan has been shelved. Uh, they haven't been investing as much money in players. Mm -hmm. I think any technical director, anyone, a player even, who moves to Chelsea now would probably want a lot more questions answered than they would have had needed to be answered just, say, two or three years ago. So um, it's, it's not surprising. And even the way that the team have been struggled this season, the, the sort of almost hashed the point of Sarri to replace Conte. And then, of course, um, the absolute bizarre statement from the manager um, after the, the salvage the late draw against Wolverhampton Wanderers at home um, on Sunday when he was asked about substituting his, his pet uh, player, Jorginho, uh, with 20 minutes left. He made the astonishing claim that every other player on the pitch was, wasn't moving fast enough to suit Jorginho's one-touch play. So he's effectively saying he selected a, he selected a team around one player, and then when those, those players, i.e. the other nine outfield players, weren't moving fast enough off the ball, he was forced to change his system with 20 minutes left. And remember, they're trailing 1-0 at this point. 
it's just, I mean, that does not sound to me like, a, you know, the, a sound basis upon which you either select or um, put a team out to play uh, based on the, 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 the passing skills, or what you perceive to be the passing skills and strengths of one player. We've seen this, obviously, we've seen this dogmatism um, or idealism, depending on how, how you want to frame it from Sari all season, um, particularly around Jorginho, but essentially around the tactics, the way the team plays, um, and, and a you know, succession of, of bizarre statements off the back of it. I guess the one positive for Chelsea with Sari is he at least did substitute Jorginho and change the system and uh, and managed to get the equalising goal. And that came after um, the switch to a kind of old-style uh, defensive counter-attacking football that he, he decided to implement on the advice of the players after the 6-0 defeat at Manchester City. So it's, it's, it's not much of a sign of hope, but at least he, he's shown that on two occasions he's prepared to... Uh, to shift away from those um, those great ideals to actually um, try and get a result, um, as opposed to just uh, sitting there saying, um, my way of football is, is the way and, and I'm going to carry on with it until the players learn how to, uh, the, the shining light on the hill, on the Sari Hill, um, which will guide them to greater glory. Well, it's a hoary old cliche that the English game and the English top flight is the best in the world. But this season, there's inarguable evidence that is living up to that tag. We have an exciting top two title race between Man City and Liverpool who are duking it out. And then below that, even for the Champions League spaces, there are four clubs in the mix, especially... Um, so after Arsenal's 2-0 win against Manchester United, which brought them right back into contention. Ian, is this the best Premier League title race that we have seen in a long, long time? I think it is, uh, Johnny, and I've been covering uh, the Premier League since 2000, and it's, it's unusual to have um, four teams still in contention for the other two Champions League places with only one point separating the top two as well, especially with Liverpool being in the mix, you know, and the, and the, the monkey on their back of 29 years with that title, etc. So, yeah, I think it is. And and, and also, the, the, the actual margin of points is unusual. I told them we're in 61 in third place, and then you go down to 57 uh, Chelsea in sixth with a game in hand. So if they beat the Mighty Seagulls uh, in that game in hand uh, against Brighton, then they would be uh, in 60, 61, sorry, 60 points as well, level with Arsenal. So, yeah, it's, I, I agree. I think the, the Premier League is overhyped and it's overhyped by people in this country about being brilliant. But when you look around Europe as well, you know, who wins the Liga? Well, it's always Real Madrid, Barcelona, Atletico come in and do a Leicester City now and again. But Bayern Munich or Borussia Dortmund usually win the, the Bundesliga. Obviously, Paris Saint-Germain are about 14 points clear at the top of the league, league A, etc. So, <clears throat> Excuse me, and now uh, Juventus also leading in Italy. So it's unusual um, around Europe to have six teams uh, fighting it out for the what? What is I guess you know the, the actual trophy for the top two, and then the Champions League places, which are so important in terms of finance and prestige. So um, and again, I think Duncan Man United probably did slip up a bit yesterday in terms of uh, how they've been playing recently, especially with that first defeat in the Premier League for Solskjaer. 
Yeah, it's, well, look, it's certainly opened things up. Man United went into that game thinking if we carry on our, um, you know, our precedent for the club run of away Premier League victories, we'll be level um, with Tottenham in third place and 61 points. And then they come out of it and uh, they are, you could say, provisionally six, um, depending on that, that Chelsea result against uh, Brighton. Um, but, you know, as you say, in a very narrow range, if, if Chelsea get a, a draw or, um, or a win against Brighton, then you'll have the Tottenham, Arsenal, Manchester United and Chelsea separated by just three points um, with eight games um, left to play, um, which, you know, as you say, a fascinating uh, end to the season in store. Um, I think, yes, Sunday's result was... Um, an important one uh, for, for Arsenal and an important one for Manchester United because as Solskjaer was saying after the game, uh, we've, we've, we've won games this season that we didn't deserve to win um, and we lost that game and we didn't deserve to lose it. Um, and I, I, I understand where he was coming from there because they created a lot of chances in the match. Um, they chased the game well. Uh, they had uh, the body of the play for um, the second half until Arsenal scored their second goal. But um, I think you, you've also got to note that uh, he decided to play conventional 4-4-2 uh, for the second match in a row. Um, all, some of that probably forced upon him by um, limited resources, the, the players he had fit. But I think also there's an element of it... it had been the starting formation he'd used against Paris Saint-Germain and they won that game. So uh, managers often tend to continue with, with what um, has brought a win or has been associated with a win in the previous game. But really, uh, against Paris Saint-Germain, that, that narrow 4-4-2 they played was um, contributed to Paris having a ton of chances in the first half of the game and was obviously being exploited um, by Unai Emery. And, uh, and Solskjaer was forced to, to switch it um, before half-time. And the same thing or a similar thing happened at Arsenal. The 4-4-2 wasn't as narrow this time. It was a bit more conventional. But um, with Arsenal playing wing-backs, as Paris Saint-Germain did, again, there was a huge amount of space being exploited behind um, Manchester United's right back and most of Arsenal's chances were coming from there and I think it was 30 minutes in that uh, that Solskjaer decided to change shape uh, to try and halt that um, and uh, that's it's a bad sign that um, you, you, you have two consecutive games when you're starting system, when you've done your scouting in the opposition, you look at the way you expect them to play um, you should be, you should have uh, various uh, provisions in place according to what they do and you are opened up by both teams and have to change shape so early on in the game um, and it, there's been some again people say well uh, he has personnel issues therefore he's being forced into these shapes the personnel issues as we've discussed on the podcast are are in part down to the training and the, the way he's been selecting players through his time at United and the way he's getting to play. So he's, he's demanding they run more. He's not been rotating the squad a lot. Um, and 
the you know the first leg of the Paris Saint Germain game, you got that rash of muscular injuries. Three players having to come off before half time. Matic injured in training the day before the game. Um, it's extremely unusual to have that many muscular injuries in a short period of time. These things add up, um, and with the tightness now you have for those Champions League places, it could be um, important in whether Manchester United qualify for Europe from their league position. Um, and I think the next game for Manchester United will be important because that momentum of winning all your away games in the Premier League, um, the long domestic unbeaten run has gone. And now, now we have to see what the response will be. We should point out that the quality of this season's Premier League is such in terms of competition that Liverpool, after 30 games, have 73 points. No team has ever not gone on to win the Premier League having 73 points after 30 games. But Man City have 74. So this Liverpool are not just sort of, you know, scaling this Mount Everest of 29 years without a, a, a first-tier uh, championship win, but they're up, up against possibly the best ever side to play in the Premier League, given that they actually exceeded um, 73 points after 30 games. Uh, that that's I mean uh, that's another fascinating thing about this title race is if we see Manchester City win two in a row um, and put up extremely high points and goals totals in both of those seasons, then we have to start start talking seriously talking about this Manchester City team being are they the best Premier League team we've seen. Uh, you know, it's fine doing it in one season, but as you know, as Guardiola underlined, immediately had won the title. What he wanted to see was whether the team were capable of retaining the title, whether they had the mentality and the focus and the ability to put back-to-back um, Premier League titles together. Because for him, that's the test of of truly great sides and truly great great players. And remember, Manchester City, um, for all the financial backing they've had um, during the Abu Dhabi era, era have yet to win back-to-back titles. So it, it's another aspect to what is a fascinating end of season is that, that you know, history chase um, and, and the assessment we, we make of Manchester City as a football team uh, as, and as a coaching unit looking after that football team if they manage to put two together in these circumstances. Given the situation that's been highly publicised, and we've been talking about it here on the Transfer Window podcast with regards to FFP, Duncan, is there any danger of a, of a comeback? I know in terms of uh, points deductions, that's something that's been mooted on social media. What's the actual situation there? I think technically there's a danger. Um, they are under investigation from the Premier League. Um, Premier League came out with a statement a formal statement about them investigating uh, Manchester City on the back of UEFA announcing their formal investigation um, of uh, uh, Manchester City's alleged failure to comply with FFP over past seasons um, last week. Now, other Premier League clubs have been influential in the Premier League investigating that matter. They there's a number of clubs that are unhappy with the way Manchester City have conducted themselves, they're unhappy with the evidence they've seen presented by Der Spiegel um, and Football Leaks. 
and uh, they want to see that properly investigated. If it's demonstrated, if Manchester City do not have a coherent defence, then they want to see Manchester City punished, prevented from doing such things in the future. So that tells you there is significant internal pressure for something to happen here. I think you have to frame this in the sense of what the Premier League would want. What does the Premier League want? Premier League wants an exciting competition. They want high broadcast sales. They want to present the Premier League as the best um, football league in the world, uh, the best football you can watch in the world. Um, is it in their interests to have a threat of point deductions on a season like this, one we've just been talking about, a you know, historic season, which is so fascinating. It's probably not in their interest to have that. Um, I think if in, a, in, in the Premier League's ideal world, the whole thing would go away and they wouldn't have to deal with it. But I'm not sure it is going to go away. If, if, if that investigation um, brings forward... Uh, grounds for penalising Manchester City. You have to say there is a very good chance that that will be the case, particularly if UEFA um, carry through their action, carry through what several people inside UEFA want to happen, which is for Manchester City to be banned from the Champions League. If that happens, the Premier League is going to be under huge pressure to do something itself. If any of uh, the transgressions UEFA find uh, Manchester City guilty of are also transgressions of the Premier League rules, which are different. They're not, you know, they're, they, they're, there are a lot of areas um, which will not uh, potentially uh, transgress um, Premier League rules that will transgress um, UEFA financial fair play rules. But if that happens, the Premier League are going to be forced to act. What I would expect is, not, is that it will not be retrospective. It would be, at worst, a points deduction um, which would be applied to them going into a, a forthcoming season. So let's say a decision comes over the summer, then a, a points penalty would be applied to Manchester City by the Premier League. So they start on negative three, negative six, negative nine. I'm just making up numbers here, but that that is the way I would see the Premier League acting if they are forced to act by the evidence and by other member clubs. Yeah, and that's the worst case scenario. <clears throat> What's the likelihood in your view? Well, the first thing I'd say is true that um, Premier League have their own investigation going on. So you've got to be clear um, for everyone that there's an investigation in this in England from the Premier League and also an investigation being conducted by UEFA um, from Switzerland. So, um, it's almost like the Premier League has been, you know, hiding their their head in the sand over this, because it's in their interest to make sure that every club, under its tutelage and under its administration, complies with both the financial fair play rules put set down by UEFA as a governing body, and also by themselves. So, what what have the Premier League been doing for the last five years? Why is it taking an external investigation by UEFA to actually bring this to to, to light two or three years later? It's really quite bizarre. I, I, I agree with Duncan. I think that it's more likely that UEFA will punish Manchester City and that the Premier League will quite happily leave it to UEFA to punish them because they don't want to be seen to be, obviously, you know, 
in some way um, hurting or injuring one, one of the major clubs in this country by points deduction. So I suspect it'll be at worst be a Champions League ban. Um, at best for Manchester City, Manchester City, it might just it might be a suspended uh, ban based on their future conduct. You could, I mean, the Premier League could go down the Serie A route, which was when you, the Calciopoli Juventus had had titles stripped of them in the past, and in some ways that's that's kind of the safer route because those titles were awarded to Inter, but no one really, I don't think they're really perceived as being Inter's titles. I think even even when clubs have um, league titles stripped for them for breaking the rules. The perception is that they won them on the field of play. Whether that be right or wrong, I think my feeling is the general perception is they won them on the field of play. So Marseille uh, won the European Cup and and uh, were shown to have cheated in that European Cup. They're, they're still perceived to be the winners of that year's European Cup. So, you know, Premier League could have the option of saying, OK, you broke the rules in the past, we're going to take that title away from you. Um, and, and then sort of stick this transgression into history and, and let people argue about who won the title that year or not. Could do that. Well, there are precedents set in, 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 you know, in Scotland, obviously, when Rangers were you know, basically demoted three divisions and people called for them to be stripped of titles. It didn't happen, Duncan. Um, yeah. And, you know, given that the UK basically make up most of IFAB, then I think, <laughs> I think you're right. I think the perception is always that it's almost like the spirit of the competition prevails. So, the <laughs> even if the spirit of the competition's been completely broken, it's yeah, I, I ironic, isn't it? <clears throat> yeah, it is. It's 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 it is an anachronism, but but that is the perception I think of people. And I think that's one of the reasons why Rangers weren't stripped of those titles because I think the SFA had a look at it and thought, what's the point? <laughs> you know, and yeah. of course, it was mainly Celtic fans who were calling. For them to be stripped of the titles anyway. So again, that's what you're saying about what Liverpool might tend to do. Well, I don't think they've got any grounds basically to to ask for set to be deducted points. So I think it's, a, it's an interesting point of contention, but I don't see it coming to pass. It should. I mean, it should, it should be said here: Liverpool are owned by Americans, as are a number of Premier League clubs, and I think. Uh, part of the reason why these Premier League clubs are putting pressure on the league to take action against Manchester City is uh, the owners are used to operating in, Amer in American sports. Quite a lot of these owners also own uh, major American football or baseball franchises um, or um, yeah. ice hockey, uh, basketball. And American sports is extremely heavily regulated in terms of... And also transparent in every way, Duncan. You can see yes. What any NBA, NFL player earns, what his contract is, you can go onto the website of the, the, the governing body and you can check the contract details right down to the last cent. Can yeah. you imagine that and, in the Premier League? Yeah, but the, the, the reason is because they have salary caps and they're limited in how much money they're allowed to spend on players. Um, and competition is is that the competition to win titles is done within that framework. But the Americans are accustomed to you have a set of league rules. Those league rules are sacrosanct. Sacrosanct. If clips break them, they get punished. So they can't understand why Manchester City, when this amount of evidence is is already in the public domain, are not under a severe investigation um, from the Premier League. Um, I just, I mean, just one last thing on this. Uh, you know, we've had a lot of talk 
uh, since Pep Guardiola came to the club about Manchester City doing the quadruple. They've actually done the quadruple. They're, they're currently under investigation by the Football Association, the Premier League, uh, FIFA and UEFA, uh, which I think is unprecedented in football. How long have you waited to get that one in, Doug? Boom, boom, Well, it's come to that time again where we do Heroes and Villains, our round uh, that looks at the weekend's action and gives you the people that we think deserve a little bit of shine, a little bit of polish, and to have their names dragged through the mud. So we're going to start off with you, Ian, with our hero. So uh, in a weekend of football, there's a lot to be ashamed about, Johnny. I'm glad I got the hero uh, to to nominate. And uh, for me, uh, Sadio Mane. I wouldn't say he's underrated at Liverpool, because that would be silly. But he's definitely understated. You know, he doesn't get as much of the headlines as Mo Salah uh, does. Bobby Firmino seems to be this cult figure who, you know, holds babies on the bench, etc., etc. And all the time, Sadio manages goes about his job. He's lightning fast. The two goals he scored, especially the first one, in Nixon at the top corner uh, on Sunday, it was just beautiful to watch. And um, I think he's Possibly, and I, people haven't even mentioned him, and that that's, that says something itself. As a footballer of the year, I think he should actually he should be a main contender. Duncan, what's your pick for the villain of the weekend? I think yeah, I think it's very easy this weekend. Sadly, I think it's uh, Paul Mitchell, the Birmingham City fan, who ran on the pitch and um, assaulted Jack Grealish um, of Aston Villa, um, and I think. Not only is he the villain, I think the Birmingham City fans who then cheered him for doing so are also the villains of the week. Um, and it's, uh, I think it's a terrible uh, precedent. Um, and uh, we, have to, uh, we have to be very careful in football that, um, that this is pinned down as quickly as possible because you, you've got to say that if, if this becomes fashionable, um, we have supporters encouraging each other to run on the pitch and, and attack opposition players and you know, getting getting a status um, off the back of it, um, we've got a serious problem in the game because every game is under threat of it. The way grounds are set up in England and Scotland, it's so easy to get access to the pitch. OK, it's time to wrap this particular transfer window up on that rather sad and downbeat note. But fear not, we'll be back on Wednesday to answer your questions to continue the debate, we are all on Twitter and even have our own Transfer Window official account at Transfer Podcast. If you want to talk to me, uh, I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane. But more importantly, if you want to talk to the guys, they're happy to respond and they're at, at GarboSJ for Ian and at Duncan Castles for Duncan. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review as this helps us reach as many listeners as possible. Until Wednesday, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.